joy to see everyone. Welcome to our special guests who are here at the ashram for this retreat. And to all Nivasis and to all who are participating in the online second order virtual reality in this retreat that is dedicated to the understanding and the attainment of real meditation. I think we made the title The Alchemy of Endless Ecstasy. Meditation as Rapture. I chose that title because of the nature of the time that we're in, in which the concept of the rapture has relevance for many, for a variety of reasons. And I, I made a few notes about the angle of approach that I've been meditating on <clears throat> for a few days as to how to specifically understand <clears throat> meditation in a way that is relevant to, <clears throat> to us undergoing this extraordinary historical transition. And the series of crises that are unfolding and affecting us on the phenomenal plane in unprecedented ways in terms of our history and of our lives before the onset of the pandemic and all that has unfolded and is continuing to unfold in its wake. And so it's important to understand meditation in a way that helps us to solve the problems that we face in this historic moment, in the very practical realities and uh, tensions and frustrations and difficulties that all either are now or will be going through as civilization decomposes before our eyes. Can someone erase the, that? Well, I'll write some more uh, points on the board. I would like to ask <clears throat> everyone, and especially our uh, live stream participants, to write uh, a few words as to what meditation means to you, why you want to meditate, what you want to get out of it specifically, so that I get feedback from you as to what is relevant for you in case uh, I'm off base as to what you're looking for, or there are supplementary or an additional factors that should be brought into the discussion. And of course, for everyone here, feel free to respond to that question as well. And so I'll, I'll open the floor before I say any more. Is there some specific 
desire in relation to learning to meditate that is uh, impelling you toward achieving that aim, especially to those who are visitors here for this retreat. Hmm? Yes, go ahead. Um, What's your name? Sophia. Sophia, welcome. Um, let's see. I have written down shedding Maya and knowing what my. What was the word? Shedding Maya. Shedding it down? Shedding. shedding it. Yeah. Ah, okay. Maya illusion. Indeed. More and more continuously. Mm-hmm. And um, knowing myself the self as soul more and more, more deeply. Okay, beautiful. Mm-hmm. That's excellent. Did you have one, something you wanted to add? At the moment, no. No? Okay. <laughs> Didn't want to put you on the spot. Anyone else want to uh, add anything? Purusha. Uh, Era says to stop mental chatter, surrender to peace. Einar says deep rest from doing. Fabian says discernment. Varus says to center in truth and be free of illusion. Got quite a few. Uh, mm-hmm. Damien says being truth. And Jason says to achieve ego death to be with the true self. Okay, excellent. <clears throat> so the consensus is that The reason we need to meditate We are in a state of ego, ego consciousness Ego, the word means I, but it is the I thought, the I as a representation of the self. And this ego consciousness that represents the self with self-images, literal images, self-concepts, words that uh, we have been told since childhood uh, regarding who we are, which may include such things as you're a brat, you're no good, you're an alcoholic like Uncle Louie, uh, you're uh, whatever. You may have been called lots of names in childhood, and you may have been treated in ways that caused you to have emotional self-images and reactions, like if you were treated like excrement, you feel like you are that to the other, and uh, if you are ignored, if you are the black sheep, if you are treated as the, the one who is the loser, or you're the favorite, the golden child, the one who can do no wrong. In either case, you have a limited self-representation that then you have to keep up, or you assume uh, other people will continue to project on you. And uh, also, that ego consciousness has a limited set of conditioned goals, desires, fears that are uh, constantly affecting uh, one's uh, equilibrium and uh, keeping one from being in a state of inner peace 
or even peace in relationships with others because of negative projections and or paranoia that others are negatively projecting on you or whatever combination thereof as well as subconscious self-defeating tendencies that produce events in which you either look bad or you have to look good and manipulate situations and people to make sure you end up with that kind of an outcome. Whatever might be the combination, and there may be splits and conflicts within various ego fragments because the ego is not a monolithic whole. It's made up of a number of self-images and concepts. Uh, some positive, some negative, some wanting one thing, some wanting another, etc. So the ego is not only a set of representations like masks that one is stuck uh, behind and uh, captured by, but also uh, intentionalities. The, the, the will of the ego is not free because it's predetermined by those self-representations and the emotions that go with them that tend to create situations that repeat the same kind of outcomes as one experienced in childhood. So the false consciousness of the self-representation must be shed. That's really the nature of maya, the illusion begins with the, uh, the delusional sense of who we are, created originally by the other, the mother, and then the father, and the family system, and then the social system, the school system, and the, uh, the media system giving you messages as to who you should be, and uh, who you who would it would be ridiculous to be like etc so the parameters of uh, the uh, the kinds of role models and the kinds of uh, developmental arcs and trajectories that we are going for in life are determined largely from the outside by the social environment and by our reactions to that environment, which may be oppositional or may be uh, compliant, uh, may have a, a number of versions of uh, strategies uh, to deal with the, the nature of the reality that is represented in our minds that uh, the world is, all of that it turns out to be illusion and it limits our potential to, to manifest who we really are and to live in freedom from those restrictions of the self-representations that otherwise determine the course of our lives and usually determine them to end in a, a fate that is not what we would have hoped for from life. So, if we say we want to go from false consciousness to real consciousness, we'll call that the self.
then meditation is the act of self-realization. It's the act of shifting the locus of our consciousness from the false self to the real self. It's that simple. Now since the false self is false, the false self doesn't find its way to the real self. The false self is simply a mask that has to be torn away. There's no action you have to do except stop believing in the false self. So the false self doesn't become the real self, but the realization of the real self is able to saturate one's consciousness and dissolve the illusory self-images, representations, and emotions that go with them, etc. And that whole frame of reference can fall away very easily and will fall away as soon as you realize the self. So Ramana, Sri Ramana being one of our patron sages, uh, says that uh, meditation or Atma Vichara is uh, the investigation of our true nature. And the only way you investigate your true nature is by abiding in your true nature. So meditation isn't knowledge about yourself or information or theories, beliefs, dogmas. It's nothing that uh, has anything to do with representation. And the, the problem for the mind, for the consciousness that wants to realize the self, is that it is addicted to using thinking as its process of trying to grasp reality. The problem is you cannot realize the self through thinking because the self is beyond thought. Thought is derivative of the self. It can never understand the self. Thought defines, and defining is confining, but the self is infinite and therefore cannot ever be captured by any representation or set of representations. No matter how exalted or pious or religious or beautiful those representations are, they're limited and therefore false and will be unable uh, to manage reality once their imaginary uh, sense uh, runs into uh, events that uh, uh, those imaginations are not equal to. So this is not about imagining that you're someone else. It's not about having visualizations. And because you can't get there, you can't get from the false self to the real self by the false self's doing anything, because anything the false self tries to do to become the real self affirms the false self. And therefore it actually takes you further away. That's why uh, in Sat Yoga we do not use any techniques. We don't use mantras, we don't use breathing techniques, we don't use uh, chanting, we don't use any of that because all of those techniques 
affirm the ego as wanting to get somewhere, wanting to achieve something, wanting to be liberated. But that affirms that you are this being with these limitations that has to struggle to attain who you really are. And that struggle keeps the real self at a distance. So even having a desire to reach the real self pushes it away because the self is free of desire and so you can't get there through desire. You can't get there through technique, you can't get there through method. That would be a bureaucratic approach to self-realization and the self hates bureaucracies. It loves freedom and it wants to be free of having to do anything whatsoever in order to know itself. Why should it have to do anything? You are already that. You are already infinite and eternal. Why should you need to struggle to know who you are? But there is a struggle, and so we have to understand why that struggle is there and uh, how to overcome the resistances to the realization of the self. But understanding that, the re that these resistances cannot be overcome by doing something. This is why Zen, a famous Zen master called Zen the gateless gate. Uh, you want to go through a gate to get to the real, uh, to enlightenment, to liberation. But who goes through that gate? There, if the, the ego can't go through that gate. And there is no gate because you are already that. How, how can you find a gate to who you already are, right? There's no process. But nonetheless, there has to be an unveiling, a peeling away of maya, indeed, of illusion. And so we need to understand what is it about the ego that makes that difficult, since the ego is suffering. If the ego wasn't suffering, you wouldn't need to meditate, you wouldn't have any desire to do it. But the ego's suffering is actually a defense against an even deeper level of suffering. So the ego is very tricky. It, it prefers to suffer with physical symptoms and difficulties with other people and, uh, and various karmic glitches than to go inside and deal with the real sources of suffering that are embedded in the nature of the ego itself. And so this, this is part of the, the difficulty that the, the meditator or the would-be meditator has to overcome. There is a subconscious fear of discovering the actual cause of the suffering that keeps the ego going and preferring to suffer rather than unveiling the sources of its suffering. So this is why I would say that there's a, a, a very important modern uh, theologian whose approach 
perhaps not to meditation, but to, uh, to let's say, the discovery of, of the self is, is helpful in, in our, the approach that I want to take tonight. And that the theologian, his name is Paul Tillich. He died in 1965, I believe. He wrote a number of very important books. Uh, he was a Protestant minister, but the Protestants, a lot of them were horrified by his approach because he said that part of the problem with Christianity and really perhaps with all religion is the literalistic way that they imagined God as a being. And God is not a being, even if, it, if you think of God as the supreme being. God, he said, is the ground of being. And it's the ground of our being, it's not another being. The ground of our being. Now that doesn't determine whether the ground of our being is personal or impersonal, but it's not the ego person and it's not a, a person that the ego can imagine and pray to and, and think uh, you will meet when you die. It's not that kind of a person, even though there may be uh, those kinds of uh, phenomena. But the only way to meditate accurately is to enter into the ground of your being. And that means to go so deep within that you uncover everything in the subconscious mind that you've been hiding from and that you're also able to from the ground of being unveil the higher ground of being the higher ground that is the the source of all that is good and beautiful and true and bring bring that through uh, into your bodily life So he wrote a book called The Courage to Be. And therefore I would say that indeed the preliminary before you can begin to meditate is that you have to have the courage to realize yourself. The courage to be who you really are. And many think, well, I have that courage, but in fact you will discover that there is a lack of courage in the ego. This is one of the forms of suffering that the ego has. It lacks courage because it lacks being, it lacks essence, since it's false, since it's only a representation. It lacks power, it lacks intelligence, it lacks clarity. It lacks the, the virtue of courage. So, if we say that courage is required first if we want to get to the self, if we are willing to face the lack of courage, of the false self and not believe in it,
And remember, courage comes from the word cur, the heart. And courage in the Hebrew language, uh, the word courage uh, often is related to Ari, the word lion. And Ari comes from the Arya, the courage of the noble ones, the Aryans. And from this word, we also get the aristocracy, the courageous leaders who are, are the, the warriors who defend the community in the original aristocracy, when it, that word still had uncorrupted uh, connotations. So the courage that we have is in our heart. And Sri Ramana says, when we meditate, we are entering the heart. We want to abide in the heart. But the false self doesn't have a heart, can't get to the heart, can't reach the heart. And it can't reach the heart because the lack of courage is based on anxiety. And anxiety is worse than fear in the sense that fear is a defense against anxiety because fear is projecting into a particular object uh, as the cause of one's fear and then one can uh, deal with that object and pretend now your fear is gone. You know, you have a fear of mice, you, you call the exterminator or you get a cat or whatever and you can deal with that fear. But uh, the, uh, the anxieties that underlie all fears can't be dealt with in any, uh, with any particular means or technique because anxiety is an unknown fear, a fear of the unknown. But it's not just the fear of any unknown. Anxiety is the fear of the unknowable. It's the fear of non-being. Not just the fear of death, but the fear, the terror of non-being, which can't be grasped even. But it lies underneath the ego very closely because the ego lacks being. And so the ego, when it is unmasked, uh, is as an imposter, as a false self, uh, not only feels uh, anxiety, but dread. And so the, the ego is afraid of the very truths that would set the consciousness free, because the ego is the prison that we must be freed from. So, to realize the self, one must have courage and one must also have wisdom. Because if you have courage without wisdom, of course, you, you can take risks, but you may take stupid risks. So, you, you want to use wisdom in order to uh, overcome the anxieties of the ego. Tillich says there are three. three uh, 
you would say existential. So again, referring to Tillich, he would say that the first anxiety and the, the least uh, difficult one to overcome is the fear of, of, uh, of a negative fate, a bad fate in life, and the fear of death, fear of physical death, which is not the same as the fear of complete non-being. But for an atheist, or an agnostic, and every ego is in a state of agnosis. It doesn't know. Uh, it, it's in, the Sanskrit word is avidya. It's in ignorance of its true nature. It's in ignorance of uh, whether there is God, whether there is salvation, whether there is uh, some purpose in meditation. And those who are not convinced of it will tend to be distracted easily or bored or fall asleep in meditation or have no interest in meditating. And all of that really is a defense against the anxiety of having to face the fear of death and the, the fear of uh, a fate that was not the destiny, which means destination that one would want from life, but, but a... Uh, a life frustrated in its aims. The second, he would say, is a spiritual anxiety, which is really the anxiety of meaninglessness and futility, pointlessness of it all, and a, a kind of anxiety that produces a barrenness, a creative block, uh, an inability to express oneself fully, even if one has talent and uh, technical expertise. One can never uh, become great as an artist or a poet or a novelist or whatever it is is one's uh, intention uh, because uh, of an inhibition produced by that anxiety that one, what one will produce will be worthless, meaningless, and, uh, and will be judged as uh, as faulty or uh, or just bad, and uh, and and that horror is uh, is an anxiety that that keeps one from creating and from becoming one's highest being. The moral uh, anxiety is based on the fact that every ego feels a sense of guilt. It's not. There are many different kinds of guilt. Sometimes it's survivor's guilt. And, uh, and sometimes it's, uh, it's a sense of sin. Sometimes it's, uh, it's a, it's a self-condemnation, whether or not there was actual sin, but a judgmental superego voice that condemns one. And a sense of being worthy of God's judgment of condemnation. And so all these uh, three anxieties, because the ego can't know, 
uh, how one will be judged and uh, whether one's work or one's life has meaning and value or whether uh, one's, uh, one's destiny will or can be fulfilled. These unknowns and unknowables affect one's ability to meditate. They keep one's anxiety levels high enough that one never calms down the mind sufficiently to reach the self. And so there has to be, in addition to courage and wisdom, there has to be love. And, and the, uh, the courage has to be based on love and there has to be truth that one is willing to face. One has to have the, the, the courage to live in truth and to face the truth. Of all of these anxieties and of the falseness of the ego and its defenses against those anxieties. If one has the, the willingness to face all of those inconvenient truths, then one will discover that underneath all of those, there is a yearning to return to the real self that will then be able to emerge in a clear field free of anxiety. So the realization of the self is the overcoming of all the forms of anxiety that the ego is heir to, and the attainment of motionless mind poised in its highest potency. Okay, motionless mind. We achieve motionless mind by freeing ourselves from anxiety and from the belief that we are the false self. It's the courage to live in the truth even though the truth is not graspable, articulable, knowable in language or symbolic thought. And uh, it is only knowable by being that. And so motionless mind is the byproduct of that urge to know the self by being the self that is no longer opposed by the anxiety that will come from the complete consuming of the unreal by the real. Once the self is realized, the, all that was false in one's psyche becomes saturated with an inner light, becomes saturated with that love, saturated with the power of truth and the power of being itself that dissolves the, let's call them even quantum wave functions that are in the body as well as in the mind of a kind of, of, of the, uh, the derivatives of anxiety, which literally might be a tightness, a lack of relaxation, physical uh, difficulties, 
contractions. Uh, there may be a host of different ways in which those anxieties were physicalized. So there's a relaxation that comes of being open completely to the truth of who you are. And, and an openness to the love of that truth of who you are and to the being that you are. And so when one is in a state of meditation, because the self, in addition to being the power, the will of, of being, of presence, and in addition to being, which is sat, in addition to being that, one is chit, the intelligence, the infinite intelligence and creative imagination that goes far beyond the ego's ken or, or potential, and also the bliss of the pure love that is the God-Self. And one, one is saturated by that love, then that love literally gives one the courage to dissolve the remaining forces that were residues of the ego occupying one's body and mind for as long as it has. And all of that can release. And then one knows peace. And one knows the joy of love and the beauty of real being. And by establishing the consciousness in the state of pure presence that has no representational uh, limit or construct that it must orbit around, the self is free to, to know its fullness. And that is when meditation is realized, as Sri Ramana says, as your real nature. It's not what you do for 45 minutes in a meditation gathering. It's not, it's not an activity that you engage in intermittently. It's simply who you are. And once you are who you are, because who you are is infinite, there is ongoing, continuing, never-ending learning, developing, growing, but there is also the stability of the unchanging self. And as the meditation reaches the ground of being, <clears throat> the ground of being is recognized, <clears throat> recognizes itself as the inmost point of energy and of, of love and of presence of the consciousness, the awareness, but also the outermost, the all-encompassing the universe itself as the expression of who you are. So that everyone you meet is a manifestation of an aspect of yourself, the oneself. 
and there are no longer any strangers, there are no longer enemies, there are no longer uh, conflicts because the oneself is able to reconcile and uh, love and have compassion for and an ability to relate to all beings as affirmable and as equal and as worthy as divine and therefore uh, peace interpersonally, peace with the world as well as peace within with all the aspects of consciousness is attained. So we are talking about a transfiguration of your being from identification with the body and the limited uh, types of thoughts and desires of the ego mind versus the bodiless, formless, infinite light of the self and the eternal life that is the self that can penetrate and saturate the life that is lived in temporality. So we have these two tracks, the eternal and the temporal, but the two are one. And once the eternal is known, the eternity manifests in time. And this is the ultimate achievement of meditation. There is no longer a distinction between the transcendent self or the ground of being and the manifestation of one's being. They are congruent, they are coherent, they are in harmony, they are resonant. And therefore there is no uh, chasm between the two that has to be crossed. Meditation, therefore, is the state of being of your real self when you are free to be who you are without any concern for loyalties to who or what you are not. The false self has many attachments, many loyalties to perhaps family system, other people who one is involved with, perhaps belief systems, creeds, dogmas, uh, all kinds of uh, attachments and loyalties that become obsolete once one has realized one's freedom. But it takes a lot of courage to live free of 
loyalties that have become obsolete and become bondages that do not serve your growth, that do not serve your real being, and that hold you in a limited and fearful and anxious state of consciousness. So the courage to cut all of those attachments and those loyalties, starting with the loyalty to the ego self-images and self-concepts and then to all of the people who relate to you via those masks, is only possible if it is done from love from a greater, more inclusive, more true love than the ego's love, which is based on fear and desire. And that love sets you free. So, the truth of your being, which we could call jnana, gnosis, the, the knowledge of who you are, which is the being itself, the beingness of the real I amness behind the, the words I am, that beingness, that knowledge is also accompanied by the vijnana or the wisdom of knowing how to relate to others as a bodhisattva, to use the Buddhist term, as a being of compassion, who, who is able to break the bondages of attachment but replace them with real offerings of love that uplifts and that frees others from their bondages. So it's not an abandonment of people. It's an ability to give people a much higher level of love and of the key to their own redemption from their bondages through your having become one who models that freedom in your own life. And then that leads to the pragyana of an all comprehensive knowing that is inherent to the self that knows literally how to heal, how to free beings from the subconscious traps that they are in because of traumas in the past and because of various kinds of uh, uh, psychic conditions, pathological conditions that have morphed one's psyche uh, in reaction to adverse circumstances. And that power of functioning as a healing catalyst then leads to a new ability to relate to others in a divine manner, not simply from a human level of interaction. And one relates to others without need, without desire, without uh, wanting the validation of other people without wanting fame or fortune or any of those uh, vulgar uh, aspects of, uh, of life that the ego is so focused on. And uh, one is able to live in freedom as a 
an emissary of that source of goodness and of the power of healing that can be of essential service to the world in particular in this moment when people are feeling massive anxieties and fears and, uh, and a sense of being in the unknown and, uh, and, and being abandoned by the powers that they took for granted would protect them, or not only being abandoned, but oppressed and, and uh, attacked. And so the ability to serve as a, an angel, a bodhisattva, a healer, a transformer, enables the undoing of whatever karma had affected the trajectory of one's fate and enable one to change one's destiny to the highest and the destiny of others to the highest destination that is possible for a human life to achieve, which is the realization of the God-Self and the transformation of the world. So there are, are two, let's say, dominant images of, of, of God, of holiness, of uh, the absolute, that have dominated the imaginations of the West and of the East. In the West, uh, the world has been dominated by the concept of the kingdom of God. And all of the religions have worked toward that moment when the messianic age would happen, the world to come, the end of this world, the apocalyptic revelation, and, and the, uh, the, the rapture that would bring the kingdom of heaven on earth. And even after the religions became mostly replaced in the dominant mindset by materialism, still the idea was to bring the world through progress to a transhumanist uh, consciousness and the ability to overcome all of our troubles through technology and all of that. Uh, we don't see that working too well these days, but the, the idea of that is still simply a secular continuation of the idea that we're working for that transformation of the world to become a beautiful place. Meanwhile, it's a ruin and uh, ecologically destroyed and, and in every other way uh, ruined for human uh, habitation. But that has been the, the idea that is, is part of the inherent yearning of those beings with, uh, with lives that have been uh, brought up in the Western cultural tradition. In the East, the image is one of nirvana and of, of transcendence of entering the eternal light beyond the world and not wanting to have anything to do with the world, getting off the wheel of rebirth, being in that, uh, that state of uh, freedom from existence rather than 
an existence that has become exalted and avataric and, and holy and godly, etc. <clears throat> but it, both of these, in a way, represent a part of the story. And, and ultimately, our understanding needs to comprehend and reconcile and unify these uh, two kinds of conceptions. The Mahayana Buddhists uh, made an effort to do that through the idea of nirvana being samsara, form being emptiness, emptiness being form, and the realization that the eternal is not uh, beyond the world, but is the world seen through uh, the perceptual capacities of the real self that is eternal life. And eternity is, is presence in the moment, in the now. It's not uh, a perpetual, endless temporality, but it is that trans-temporal realization that happens within the temporal phenomenal plane and yet exalts it, transforms it, through making it a manifestation of divine presence. And so I think it is that reconciliation, that unification of these tracks that can happen through the middle track of the dream field, of our ability to dream and imagine with the power of the self the, uh, the, the new world arising within the old through the vibrational frequency of consciousness rising to its highest level and unifying, becoming a unified field of blissful love in which all are contained and supported and recognized and brought to the fullness of their power through the emanation of that love and that joy. And that is what uh, is the source of the creation and sustenance of a community. And that can work with a small community or a planetary community, or an interplanetary community for that matter. So it, there is no limit to the holy communion that this cosmos can be when we are in the level of consciousness that supports and can ground that uh, level of divine relationality. So to end for tonight's um, introduction to meditation, it's that realization of the inmost and the outermost and the connectivity of all of us together as one and the harmony that is created by the realization of the source of our being as the same and as the nature of our being as love, as, as that which is universal and pertains to all that enables us to drop all of our defenses and be totally vulnerable, open-hearted, and, uh, and free to express our deepest beingness with, with everyone, uh, in, whether it's in silence or in words or in actions, but to be free to perceive 
and to recognize and to live as the self that is one with all that is. And this is meditation. So I hope that's a useful introduction for people and can get away from all of these ideas of practicing some technique, but allowing yourself to literally sink into that ground of your being and realize who you are without any of the limitations of the chattering ego mind interfering with your realization. Okay, namaste. So we have a little time left, and if there are questions or comments, please feel free. Purusha. Thank you, Shunya. Um, our first question comes from Michael. Michael says, it occurred to me following my morning meditation that associated with the egoic eye thoughts are many semiotics and symbols which effectively create the illusory world. These are manifested and adopted through the perceived religions, corporations, governments, media to also create our world. Bearing in mind the current state of affairs, pandemic, the chaos, coming omega point and singularity, is it not time we negate all these symbols, signs, and prophecies in order to realize the self? Even the Omega Point, the Buddha, Christ Consciousness, Brahman, are representational. The saying, energy flows where attention goes, seems pertinent, and that we are consciously keeping the illusion alive. Jung would have suggested that we integrate these archetypes. Surely this only creates complexity. No, I, don't, I disagree with that in the sense that we have to understand these as symbols, not as signs. And this is a very important uh, distinction. Uh, the, let's say the concept of our Buddha nature or nirvana or uh, the self, these are, are symbols of that which cannot be grasped by the word. So we're, we're, meditation isn't thinking, I am the Buddha, or I have the Buddha nature, or I am the self, or any, any of those uh, kinds of semiotic affirmations. No, it's the ability to use the symbol and penetrate through it to what its actual meaning refers to. And the Zen masters have always said, the, don't mistake the finger pointing for the to the moon as the moon. No, but you do need a finger that points to it. If you didn't have the Zen masters pointing to it, uh, it would be much harder to locate. So these concepts uh, of the uh, the transcendent real uh, are important because the ego does use language. It does use uh, symbols. But it has to distinguish a symbol from a sign, and, and, and that's the problem with the idea of God that Tillich noted in Christianity, that God had become a sign uh, for an image of some being, whether it's an old man on a cloud or it's some other uh, image, but it's, uh, a, uh, uh, it's too limited. 
But if you understand uh, symbols as metaphors and analogies for that which cannot be languaged, then these can be the gateless gate that can take you to the real. Uh, so it is the silencing of, uh, of all language, motionless mind, as I said, uh, in its highest potency, which is the alertness to receiving uh, the downloads from that infinite source that can articulate in new symbols that can help someone to reach that real. New words for the moon, new words for the sun uh, that are no longer cliches and no, no longer uh, exhausted symbols or metaphors. The real problem is that the metaphors don't work anymore. The word God it, it creates all kinds of allergic reactions because of the misuse of that term. And, and we, could, we could say all of the various terms have lost their, their potency uh, to the imagination, which is part of the difficulty today. But nonetheless, because we have to speak, and even your question was semiotic, was in words, we have to use the, the language that we have in order to break through to that in us that is beyond language. And these symbols can be portals to that beyond and, and must be used in that way to be effective. But they are the, the best, uh, let's say, uh, membrane that can uh, break us through the phenomenal into the noumenal if we uh, use them courageously and with integrity. Nectar. Thank you. Um, thank you for this teaching. I have a question about, you mentioned the, um, the ego is, has a fear of discovering the actual cause of suffering. And are those the suffering, the sufferings are the three mm -hmm. existential anxieties? Sure. Especially Death. one's guilt, one's sense of sin, one's sense of unworthiness, and uh, one's fear of death, one's, uh, one's terror that one has led a meaningless, futile, petty, narcissistic life, and, and the, the terror of judgment of that by oneself or by uh, some supreme intelligence. So yeah, I think those are much more difficult to overcome than the, the superficial levels of our suffering. Okay. Anyone else? Okay. Question from Matt. Matt says, the congruence of sat and life, is that what is meant in some traditions as the five senses transforming into one taste? I'd love an elaboration on that. Well, sat is eternal life, and it's the supersensory life. It's the life of the, the being of light and the being of pure intelligence, who is the dreamer of the dream that is perceived through the five senses. Once one is awake to the fact that it is a dream in the mind of this supreme intelligence and not a self-standing reality, and that the character one is playing in the dream is not one's real self, 
then one is able to transform maya, which is the illusion of seeing the world not just through the five senses, but the five senses and the mental constructs that create illusions of enemies and friends, desires and fears, and all of the other uh, uh, complexities of the ego, and instead sees the world as lila, the play of God, and everyone as a divine being engaging in that play. It's choreographed by the one intelligence of the supreme intelligent being, and that is bringing uh, the world to its highest state of blessing through processes that will look terrifying and destructive from the ego perspective, but that will be recognized as salvation and uh, uh, redemption by the, uh, the level of, of consciousness of the real self. So we are simultaneously damned and saved, you could say, because at the ego level, we're going through damnation and the world is, is in a, a, a crisis of suffering and worse than ever before. And, uh, and people are feeling the judgment, the wrath of God that is, uh, is descending on the world, the angel of death, all of that, those archetypal forces that are biblical in nature. People are already saying we have plagues that are biblical, literally swarms of locusts bringing hunger to most of the world uh, today. They're all through Africa, India, Asia, Russia and China are being all affected by these, uh, these swarms and famine in, in many parts of the world, including North America, is coming. And so uh, these, these forces uh, have a, a terrifying uh, effect upon the ego, and yet at the same time, uh, the same situation is seen as an ultimate blessing and salvation from the perspective of uh, the self. So the same senses produce delight and, uh, and anxiety and, and horror uh, for the ego. And depending on your vibrational frequency and uh, the freedom from those filterings and masks of the ego, your, your state of consciousness will be determined by, uh, by who you are who is using those five senses to perceive the phenomenal plane. Prema, related to this teaching, is there a relationship between the three existential anxieties and jnana, vijnana, and pragyana? No, I don't think so. I, I think that jnana uh, resolves uh, all of them, uh, but the vijnana will help you to help other people resolve them, and the pragyana will help you to resolve the, the problems of the whole world and bring the kingdom of God to the world. So I think that's more the, the differential. Mm -hmm. um, my question is about something you said, which I don't remember having heard before. When you said relate, uh, we must relate to all beings as affirmable. Mm -hmm. 
I wanted to ask you if you could um, expand a little on that. What, what, do, what did you mean by relating to all beings as affirmable? What, what is affirmable and how do you relate uh, in an affirmable well, way? First of all, every ego is seeking affirmation and validation from the other, or at least from some others that it, that it in turn values and, uh, and wants the approval of. Uh, it's, it's not always possible to affirm the ego of the other because, uh, again, to go back to this idea of God, you have, uh, you have two uh, versions of God, even in the West, you have God the judge, and you have God uh, who is the being of love, who forgives, who has mercy, right? So uh, the, the question always in relation to another being uh, is where are they in the balance of love and law? And, and if you're with a being who has violated the law, the dharma, whatever, and, and acted in a way that's inaccurate and harmful, uh, that is not affirmable. But th as the being of love, that is your God self, you can always relate and affirm that person or that being's real self and, and encourage the, that real nature to come forth and, uh, and to dissolve that which is not affirmable uh, in a relationship of love in which their essential being is affirmed and validated and loved and connected to. And then the other will feel it safe to let go of whatever pathological intentionalities were there as a uh, reactive uh, defense against its paranoid projections of the other. And so there's an ability to, to help, the, uh, help whatever being is, uh, is operating with uh, inaccurate projections to be able to free themselves from them using the power of compassion and love, but also the accuracy of truth. Okay. Thank you. Okay. We've got a question from Fabian, um, and another person wanted this one asked as well. The question is, God is love, but what is love? I think love in its ultimate uh, state can't be defined because we are so used to defining in terms of subject-object and that love is considered uh, a, uh, something you have to give to another. Uh, but uh, love is actually the blissful energy of the, the truth of one's being. It is being itself uh, as it emanates freely without any inhibition. Love is the nature of the self and, and it's not really uh, definable or describable in any objective sense because it's not objective, but neither is it subjective. Uh, the subjective feeling of love as an emotion is not real love either. Uh, and so love in the real sense is never an I love you. It is always love as, as the beingness of all that is. And, and so it's not uh, something that one can use or manipulate or withhold or any of those uh, ways that people use the word love in a, uh, an interpersonal sense to control others. 
and it has nothing to do with possessiveness or desire or any of that. It, it is the, uh, the, the, the blissful sense of infinite and eternal life and light. That's as close as I could get in words, but even that doesn't really get to it because it's, it's a feeling. Uh, if I use the word ecstasy, that's probably uh, closer than, uh, than some others. But what is ecstasy, you know? Uh, the word from the Greek means to stand outside of oneself, but outside of the ego. Outside of the ego is the infinite, the, the real self. Uh, but it also from the Sanskrit means ekstiti, standing in the one, the one supreme uh, presence. So it is that presence in all of its magnificence and glory and splendor and radiance. All of those words are, are attempts uh, to try to do justice to the reality of love, but they are simply you know, pale shadows of what love really is. In meditation, um, before the word reconciliation just mm -hmm. came to mind, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and then you used it a little while mm -hmm. ago, and now with your answer to uh, this question. I wondered if uh, uh, what it was in the process of that, in the practice of the meditation, uh, what was happening that led to the the symbol of reconciliation as a word come up? Mm. And when you just answered now this question on on love not being um, describable as um, uh, a state in duality. It perhaps what I was um, experiencing that came as the word. Uh, I wanted to ask you about this. Was the reconciliation a duality into that ecstasy in, in that uh, center place mm -hmm. of the eye that unites in which the dual perception of reality uh, is, comes together in meditation by centering the focus of attention mm -hmm. in, uh, in that immovable mm -hmm. presence that is non-dual. Mm -hmm. I think that is uh, perhaps the portal to the reconciliation of all of the conflicts. As long, if one has reconciled the internal conflict between the temporal empirical being and the real self, then yes, indeed, then that, that can be uh, as well the key to the reconciliation of all conflicts, internal and external. So I do think that that is uh, uh, a useful symbol. I think the difficulty, the real difficulty in, in the meditation that uh, enables the real self to fully emerge is that as the light of the real self is penetrating, it is annihilating the ego, uh, literally. The ego is undergoing its death throes. It is dissolving. 
And as it dissolves, it releases all of those anxieties and all of the, uh, its hell realm images that had been suppressed. They come into one's consciousness. And one has to be able to tolerate and endure the purification of the soul uh, that is undergone as the, the, the limited truths of the ego's unconscious or subconscious uh, fantasy realm are revealed and uh, released. And it's, it's that process uh, which is the working through of the shadow, to use a Jungian term for it, but it happens much more radically and much more intensely in a meditative state than it would in a therapeutic uh, modality. And, uh, and it can happen uh, instantaneously that one receives uh, a, a shock wave of uh, intense uh, feeling in the, uh, the, the, uh, the ego's resistance to dying and the light uh, simply refusing to, uh, to allow it to continue by, by its seeing through the illusory uh, addictive enjoyment uh, that must dissolve. And so the ego's will, whatever was part of, of the will of that construct to hold itself together, to feed off of those enjoyments of uh, those fantasies, uh, has to die. And one has to be willing to let it die without resisting that death. Otherwise, the suffering continues. Uh, and that's the reconciliation, I think, with one's life and one's being. Mm -hmm. I think this will be the last uh, question for the evening. Go ahead. Well, that's perfect, because we've had a lot of people giving a thumbs up to this question. The question comes from Damien, who asks, how can one reconcile having to participate in an ego-based economy to provide for basic needs, food, shelter, clothing, when the truth of one's being recognizes the limitations of said economy? I don't think that's difficult to do once one recognizes that the economy is a temporary phase of the uh, ongoing transformation of life. That economy itself is in a state of breakdown and, uh, and, and soon it will not be any longer. We're seeing the, the end of the system. Uh, and so particularly now, uh, the question I think is more about how do we begin to live in another kind of economy? And I think that the economy that will replace the capitalist buying-selling model because of the, the complete loss of value of money in any current uh, form of, uh, of its manifestation is a gift economy in, in which we give as much as, as possible uh, to all, and, uh, and there can be a return of gifts, but without an owing, <clears throat> without a, an indebtedness, without a karmic account of being formed between people. And, uh, and the more that we can operate that way, which is why we're trying to even offer these uh, teachings, uh, live stream in, in that same way, that what it, whatever uh, uh, is, uh, is willing to be given is accepted. There's no uh, firm uh, 
price, this is it, you know, the hardening of the barteries uh, that capitalism became. Uh, no, we're, we're willing to accept whatever uh, and everything is an offering of love. And I think that's the only kind of an economy that will be able to thrive and survive as the, the uh, capitalist economy collapses. And once uh, one is on that kind of uh, a system of exchange, then one uh, is freed from a lot of these uh, false uh, relationships in which we use each other and treat each other as objects and in which there is no compassion and no love and in which we think we can have some island of safety by having a lot of money and that we don't need to relate to people or be loving because we can order people around. All of that is, uh, is dying and, and needs to die so that true community can be reborn in the world. I hope that's helpful. Okay, I think we'll, on that note, adjourn for the evening. Thank you all, and we'll continue this uh, meditation tomorrow. Namaste. <laughs>